listening to Harvard Real Estate Review podcast. Subscribe to comments, insights, analytics, and all things real estate. Welcome back, everyone, to the Harvard Real Estate Review podcast series. My name is George Zhang, and along with Dixie, I'm editor emeritus of the Real Estate Review. So, beginning this fall, in order to further our impact in the virtual world, we're thrilled to launch a series of online content, including articles and podcasts that sit at the intersection of real estate technology. Design and innovation. This is Dixie Wu. For today's episode, we'd like to shift here from housing-related topic from episode one to envisioning a potential future for workplace planning. Before COVID pandemic hit, an increasing number of studies demonstrated how various built environment factors can impact workplace productivity. The need to gather building information and use this information effectively is pivotal. To create a healthier, more productive, and more comfortable environment for employees. After the drastic change of COVID, corporations also changed their demand for type of building performance. Such a change created new sets of standards and norms for both the end user companies and the technology suppliers. Today, let's unpeel the rationale behind companies' decision making process. Let's discover what's changed. And let's see how technologies can support these changes. We're pleased to welcome back our uh, wonderful moderator, Irina Paplamava, graduate of the, the Harvard Business School MBA program, and previously a director and principal at the Boston Consulting Group Digital Ventures. And she's currently a chief operating officer at Garden Direct, an insure tech company. She worked on a comprehensive guide for investing in real estate tech entitled "Picking Winners and Losers in Prop Tech." Published in our HRER issue number eight, that article in some ways served as an inspiration for coming together for more real-time conversations on prop tech like this one. Joining Irina are four industry experts from multitude of areas, including Zach Aaron's co-founder and partner at Metaprop VC, John McCumber, senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, David Gerster, VP and investor at JLL Spark Venture Fund. As well as Dan Ryan, CEO and founder at VergeSense, a company developing space utilization and sensing platforms that help real estate professionals monitor foot traffic and occupancy level within buildings. Without further ado, Irina, the floor is yours. We are in unprecedented times of global pandemics, and workplace tech and innovative thinking are especially needed to help companies plan a post-COVID workplace. We have a great show for you today and a fantastic lineup of guests. And to kick things off, let's hear introductions from our incredible guests themselves. On, on the line, you've got Dan Ryan, co-founder and CEO of VergeSense, which is a provider of advanced occupancy sensors and analytics uh, for the Fortune 2000. Our products help companies instrument their buildings and understand how people mo- move within them. Really excited to be here. Hey, everybody. I'm Zach Ahrens. I'm a co-founder and general partner at Metaprop. We are an early stage venture capital firm focused on prop tech and architecture, engineering, construction tech based currently in the metaverse, but also in New York City. Thrilled to be here sharing thoughts on the built world with everybody. Uh, this is John McCumber. I'm a finance professor at Harvard Business School, although my original career was about 30 years in real estate and construction. So I like the industry from the steel and concrete point of view. I look now at how to bring capital towards resiliency and sustainability. And I've also recently published a book about healthy buildings, how indoor spaces drive performance and productivity. 
I'm David Gerster. I'm an investor with the JLL Spark Venture Fund. Uh, we are an early stage PropTech VC, uh, and we are part of JLL, the Fortune 500 commercial real estate firm. Excited to be here. Thank you, everyone. So excited about this conversation. To get started, let's talk about this. No doubt there's a lot of uncertainty about the post-COVID future. In which circumstances do you see some businesses returning to work in person and other businesses that will not? John, what is your perspective? I'll back up and give a, a teacher kind of perspective to say that there is not any one true path. We don't know how any of this is going to unravel, uh, including that we don't know if COVID will be contained in three to four or six months, or maybe it will never be contained. It will always be with us and you can always get it again, like dengue or something like that. We also don't know the course of the economy. So whether the economy comes back strongly will be one thing. If it doesn't, it's another. And finally, the uh, context is really different if you're thinking about central city, global financial hub, high-rise buildings versus more distributed um, second-tier cities or suburban. And of course, if you're thinking about different property types, so office is one thing, uh, retail or hotels are quite another. So I think people will have to weigh all those different characteristics when they think about where businesses will come back and and where they won't. And it's a little bit um, short-sighted to just think about the people who are probably on this call who are knowledge workers who have jobs where they can actually work from home when there are plenty of people in the world who, who can't do remote work. So I'll be really curious to see how other people um, see this situation. Zach, do you see companies going back to the office in person? Yeah, I think everybody realizes that working from home exclusively uh, is not the panacea that we all thought it was going to be. And people realize that there's some benefits to it as well. Um, so the, the view we take is that the future of work, at least for knowledge workers, is, is hybridized. So companies are going to be hiring globally. It's going to be hub and spoke. You're going to see uh, large corporate HQs clustered in big cities. Um, there will be some responsibility to show up there um, periodically. That could mean a couple times a week. That could mean a couple times a quarter. Uh, then there's going to be these sort of third places, these, these um, spokes, if you will, places where maybe they have a flexible office location. And then they're going to spend a lot of their time uh, working from home as well. And so you're going to see sort of one to two days a, a week uh, in the in the headquarters, one to two days a week in some sort of third place, whether that's a club environment, uh, you know, uh, um, or some sort of uh, co-working uh, flex office facility, and then one to two days uh, uh, at home. Um, but uh, we certainly don't believe the office is going away anytime soon. Uh, the occupiers of that space, though, just want some flexibility. Absolutely. And what do you think are the pain points that a lot of uh, people have discovered while working from home that you think might be driving them back now to go to the offices? Well, it, 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 it runs the gamut. You know, there, there are people who um, are, are frankly uh, bored and lonely and crave social interaction that an office setting can provide. Um, there are folks who have been uh, in relatively small quarters uh, with relatively large families um, who want to sort of spread out um, a little bit more and have some time to themselves. Um, so I think it's a it's a combination of a bunch of people wanting to go back to not necessarily what office culture was like uh, pre-pandemic, not necessarily go back to status quo, but go back more frequently to the office. If you look at 
New York City even before this uh, second wave of, of uh, COVID-19 started spiking, office occupancy was only about 13 to 14%, um, so pretty anemic. So, uh, but we're bullish that, that post-proliferation uh, uh, of a vaccine, you're going to see people returning to work en masse, but you know, it's, 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 it, utilization will be 40%, 50%, and that'll be the norm. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we see firms getting rid of their of their offices. Absolutely. And no doubt that also has uh, an effect on the investment strategy that I hope we'll get to discuss uh, later about how Metaprop is thinking about it. One of the key considerations and requirements, frankly, is to make that potential return to work healthy, uh, safe and sustainable for all the employees. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about how you and BirchSense are helping clients and companies decide and plan how to go back to work safely? Sure. Yeah. And before I hit that, I just want one data point on, on the conversation before around sort of when do we expect and, and do we expect companies to come back to their sort of pre-COVID occupancy levels? Um, one thing that we've been able to see is that um, we've got a number of deployments um, globally. So we've got uh, large footprints in, in Asia, in Europe and in uh, North America. Uh, and and uh, interestingly enough, uh, a lot of our Asian uh, deployments are already sort of at or have exceeded uh, their pre-COVID occupancy levels. And, and we think that's a signal that um, uh, although uh, people are, are definitely going to adapt to this, there is still sort of this fundamental innate human uh, requirement to, to socialize and, and be in physical presence with others. And I think once we get to, po- to a point at which um, pandemic is is mitigated or managed, um, that you will see a lot of that. You, the, the workplace is definitely going to change, um, but you will see you know pe- people wanting to, to return. And a lot of that's reflected in a lot of the, uh, the other sort of customer engagement uh, we have across the board uh, in terms of sort of like how people are, are using, you know, occupancy data and data from our products to, to do this. Uh, there's really sort of two fundamental different use cases. Uh, one uh, right now is how do we use utilization data to deliver a more sanitized work environment? Um, so companies have been spending a lot more on cleaning. And um, with um, uh, with occupancy data, you're able to target the cleaning and sanitation schedules to the areas that are actually uh, used as, as opposed to just doing sort of a blanket, a blanket cleaning across an entire portfolio. So using data to drive more efficient cleaning and sanitation has been a big thing. Uh, and the second piece is uh, how do I enable workplaces to be uh, more flexible? Um, so in a traditional work environment, you may have a one-to-one seating ratio uh, where everybody gets an assigned a desk. Um, as we, people are sort of transitioning to this more hybrid model, having technology that allows you to identify available space on demand, book it, reserve it, and occupy it, uh, is going to be very much a thing that you'll see more and more of. That's so interesting. And I know, you know, VergeSense started kind of working on solving slightly different pain points. With COVID, it impacted you guys quite a bit. And so can you talk maybe what potential tailwinds the new reality brought and maybe new challenges? How's that impacted your your business at VergeSense? Yeah, it, it's been, frankly, pretty surprising. Um, so pre, pre-COVID, um, the majority of the adoption of our product was for people who were looking at uh, reducing their office footprint. 
Uh, so typical building, uh, and even in this, I'm speaking the pre-COVID context, is typically you know 40, maybe 50% utilized, so, so quite low relative to its capacity. And companies were deploying our product to identify areas of waste um, and reduce the size of the portfolio. And, and you know, some more forward-thinking companies were thinking about you know transitioning towards you know this more agile, hybrid style of working. Uh, when COVID hit, we were initially um, very concerned, uh, like, like like everybody, um, and we, we took some steps early on to um, to manage um, you know manage how we were gonna kind operate the company. But um, as we sort of got um, past March and into April, uh, May, June, July, um, a lot of these sort of safety and security related um, uh, use cases emerged, uh, where customers would use our product to identify areas to clean. Uh, monitor uh, capacity to make sure that buildings weren't weren't over capacity. So it sort of created this acute um, uh, sort of buying behavior during the COVID period, where customers would use the product to, to manage, uh, help manage during during COVID. And then um, now the conversation has shifted more towards in a sort of post pandemic context. What does my real estate footprint need to look like when people are only coming into the office two three days a week? Uh, and that's you know caused a, a lot of people to reimagine, rethink how that was going to uh, be architected, uh, and and think about uh, what software tools and and, and um, uh, data sources they would need uh, to operate a, a truly hybrid, agile way of working. For sure. I, I think VergeSense is definitely working to deliver a very crucial service in this transitional time as companies plan the return to work uh, for their teams. You know, Zach, I know that you and Dan have known each other for some time now, and you certainly see, you know, VergeSense uh, as, as one of the key, key businesses that are solving interesting problems. Can you tell us uh, a bit about kind of how you, from an investor perspective, are looking at new opportunities in uh, prop tech um, during COVID and post-COVID? Yeah, it's it's very similar to the themes we've always uh, been investing in since we started the firm in 2015. Uh, technologies, for example, like computer vision, you know, the which create the opportunity for people to not have to be on a construction site, for example, as much. Um, we've always invested in technology like that and, and those types of platforms that enable just sort of basic functionality like off-site um, job site inspections have, have exploded in their, in their growth during COVID. Um, but that was a theme that was sort of inevitable anyway, and COVID has proved to be the great accelerant. Um, so thematically very, very similar, just sort of accelerated, uh, what, what we've always, uh, been investing in automation, uh, would be another, uh, key theme that, that, that's seen, um, a significant uptick, but has always been sort of thematic amongst prop tech, uh, venture capitalists. Um, the way we think about investing in general is we, is we look at the big trends that are happening right now in fintech. And we imagine prop tech as being, let's call it, somewhere between three to seven years behind fintech, depending on the subcategory. And so we're looking always at what what is coming uh, along uh, around the corner, around the curve, um, and it's usually themes that are are popular in fintech. You know, you look at uh, it got blocked, for example, by by DOJ, but the Plaid acquisition, the idea of sort of um, banking as API first, um, 
we're, we're looking at uh, uh, sort of API first GraphSQL database companies emerge now in the, um, in the prop tech sector. And we're very, very excited about that. Um, so that's sort of how we, how we look at things, how we look at trend tracking. And I know that you, you've been kind of analyzing opportunities in this space very seriously for a while. And you also co-authored a great book. So it makes sense that, you know, COVID has served as an accelerator for so many already compelling technologies that made a ton of sense. Um, Are there any surprises that you see emerging during COVID in prop tech space that perhaps weren't there as you were kind of looking at opportunities to invest? I'm, I'm surprised and to the, uh, I'm pleasantly surprised by what, what you've seen, the resilience of some of the businesses, some of the alternative accommodation businesses, um, businesses like Airbnb, um, even flexible office providers, you know, are going to sort of reemerge uh, uh, with, a, with a lot of uh, uh, tailwinds. Um, so I, I would say that, I, yeah, that when, when the pandemic first hit, I was, uh, I was pretty bearish on a lot of categories and, and I'm, I'm sort of surprised that um, pleasantly that many of them are, are actually uh, uh, consolidating their position sort of and then, and then can emerge uh, even stronger with even more market share and even more efficiency gain, um, you know, come, let's call it uh, somewhere between six to 12 months from now. We know that not every company will choose to go back, but some will. Um, and so will things change and in what way? Maybe there's things that's already changed and it'd be great to get your perspective. John, um, do you have a perspective on this? Sure. And I've been really interested to hear what everybody else has said already. I think in a broad sense, there are some things that aren't going to ever unwind. Um, one is the public's awareness of health issues. So when Joe Allen and I wrote the book about um, healthy buildings, this was pre-COVID, and there was starting to be awareness of of healthy buildings, well buildings, carbon dioxide, things like that. The public, at least in our lifetimes, is not going to forget how bad uh, something like this can be. So in the old days, if your building wasn't healthy, maybe people have a couple sick days for a cold. It's really expensive if somebody's in a ventilator for 14 days or something like that. The other thing that's not going backwards is the comfort with remote work. So the ability for people to work uh, on Zoom or Teams or um, Hangouts or something like that, or Google Plus, um, isn't going to unwind. And so that um, has probably accelerated that by decades. The third thing that I think is uh, still waiting to pounce, I'm afraid, is a, a pretty big real estate recession because the the economy just isn't doing very much. The market is doing great. The stock market is fantastic, but there's still 20 or 30 million people unemployed. If offices go back to 50% utilization, that's 50% of the space. Hotels are probably never going to come back. So there hasn't even started to be a wave of, of bankruptcies and recapitalizations and uh, uh, liability and negligence claims against office owners. So those three things, I think, are going to um, affect what people do. Uh, more specifically, as people, as firms address all those aspects, I think there's never going to stop being kind of a, a hierarchy of controls in the space of health controls. And uh, I can talk about this more if you want, but it's a choice that companies make based on their individual circumstances and capital needs and the rents and everything else around um, very strict uh, physical controls like social distancing, lockdowns, very um, 
can be very elaborate engineering controls, whether it's ionization or ultraviolet or more elevators, or very strict administrative controls, like we're going to have people in an A day and a B day, and they're going to come in twice a week or twice a quarter, or personal protective equipment, all that will happen. And all that has to be optimized based on a whole setting and series of health performance indicators. Absolutely. I think hierarchy um, is an important question to discuss because some of our listeners are uh, CEOs that are uh, running teams and companies. And as they're planning potential return to the office, they're kind of thinking about, okay, there's like 15 things that I need to do, but what are the my, my fundamentals, uh, non-negotiables, and what are nice to have. And so what would you recommend uh, to our CEOs and, and company leaders? Well, let me walk you through the hierarchy of controls and some of the aspects of who guarantees your workplace is safe from largely public health um, point of view. And then I think it'll be really interesting to hear how Dave, Dan, and Zach respond to that from a practitioner point of view. So the hierarchy of controls, if you imagine a pyramid like the hierarchy of needs, at the bottom is things that work really well, that's really wide in the pyramid because they're effective, but they're at the bottom because they're expensive. And that's essentially lockdowns. Lockdowns work. They are really expensive. So the next thing up on the hierarchy on the pyramid is a narrower band that's higher up, which is essential workers. So nurses have to come to work. Grocery store people have to come to work. Uh, bus drivers, people in uh, meatpacking plants, we can protect them. The next layer up in the hierarchy is these engineering controls, as I mentioned, which includes things like, what's your rate of ventilation? What are your filters like? Um, are you thinking about some kind of um, uh, touchless entries or things like that? Essentially, it's all the, the fancy stuff that vendors are selling and which you can do if you have a well-capitalized building and a, a pretty high rent rate. You know, you don't, if you're getting a hundred dollars a square foot in New York, you don't mind spending $5 a square foot for this stuff. But if you're getting $20 a square foot and that's gross in from some dentist in Peoria, who's not even paying his rent, you're not going to be spending this kind of money. So then you work up to administrative controls. And those are a lot of the aspects around sensors. Are you really six feet apart? Are people coming the days they're supposed to be there? Are they in the the uh, spaces they're supposed to be in? What's the humidity? Those kind of things. And finally, at the top, the least effective but also least expensive is personal protective equipment, and those are masks. So you see everybody using some combination of those things. And when, when Joe and I talk about schools reopening, we say you have to blend these things together, including who's your population and uh, what's the, the local uh, positivity rate at the time. And you see this is how Harvard and other schools are reopening as well. So when you think about, is this stuff actually happening? Because every landlord claims it. I get an e like five emails a day from Marriott and everybody else saying, we're the safest place there is. And, you know, Delta United Americans. Well, who guarantees this? Nobody guarantees it. The government's not doing it. The landlord maybe can do it. But you can combine guarantees, which are alliterative around screening, sensors, surveys, statistics, standards, and settings. So the settings being, yep, we're going to have three air changes an hour, or we're going to have um, less than five or less than a thousand parts per million of CO2, and that's the way the building is going to be set. You can screen people. You can take their temperature. You can make them do COVID tests. You can think of surveys. You can say, how are you feeling? Do I have a headache? Do I pass crimson clear before I go in? Is my, my office mate sneezing on me and not wearing a mask and the middle seat person on the plane doing that? You can follow the statistics and see quicker than some of the other COVID statistics how uh, 
whether people whether disease is spreading in offices. And there isn't even really a standard. Like there are standards for minimum ventilation that ASHRAE and people like that do, and there are starting to be standards from well-building and fit well. I personally think that big trade associations and big landlords will end up setting their own standards for an extra uh, level of indoor air quality, and they'll use companies like BirdSense to uh, define that. Other companies in the Metaprop portfolio, and if you're a large entity like, say, JLL, and you have a staff that can look at this, it'll be a real source of advantage to have a real-time dashboard so people are comfortable walking in your theater, walking in your store, walking in your apartment, walking in your office, and they're not just hearing some blah, blah marketing promise from somebody who's got a bunch of people just out um, you know, spraying Lysol on the front steps every day so that that health theater gets um, gets visualized. So um, you got me going, but I'm really interested to see what Dan and Zach and Dave um, think about that and whether they're reacting to those kind of of um, pressures and trends. Yeah, yeah the, the, the sort of last point you hit on, uh, on sort of how do you deliver confidence to occupants that uh, owners, landlords, facility managers are taking the appropriate steps is definitely one that, that resonates because because a lot of these facilities, you know, they, they want to get people back. Um, and in order to do that, they want to give confidence to occupants um, that um, steps the steps are being taken and the environment is actually as healthy as they, as, as they say. So um, that's where we've seen a lot of a um, lot of interest in uh, taking data from our system and displaying it to uh, to the occupants. How many people are in the floor? Is it over capacity? Is it under capacity? Is it actually you know safe to enter that floor? And then um, similarly, um, this is something that, that's sort of certainly changed since the beginning of the of the pandemic. Uh, back in March, uh, the, the interpretation of COVID at the time was that it was largely surface fomite transmission. And then, you know, recently um, there's been an acknowledgement that it's that's airborne um, uh, transmission is the, likely the dominant mode of transmission. And that has uh, created a surge of interest that we've seen uh, in monitoring air quality within buildings, um, um, both on sort of the scheduling front of, you know, hey, how often am I if I actually uh, changing out the air, uh, as well as proving, you know, with with the data stream from a sensor. Um, what the CO2 levels are what, what, and what the, um, the actual air quality is. So that's been something that's been new. Um, it's changed in the course of the, the past six months. Uh, John, you brought up the topic um, that standardization is uh, very much needed. And uh, for sure, you know, everyone on this call will play a role in this. Um, and your research and your book uh, already started that conversation that is going to be very rich. One, I know that one of the key elements of kind of a framework to, of thinking about it is uh, performance metrics for healthy buildings or new healthy buildings. How are they different from what is potentially status quo when uh, employers or businesses think about office buildings? Can you tell us more about those KPIs? Well, sure. The the minimum standards that are put forth by people like ASHRAE, this American Society of Heating and Refrigeration Engineers, are minimum standards. And they're not something that is really tuned for uh, what makes people most uh, productive and, um, and healthy. And they aren't really based on that much evidence. They're based from long ago, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, when about all we could measure was temperature and humidity. And even before the energy crisis led us to create these very green and very tight buildings. So now you see extremely tight residential buildings that get sick. There are sick buildings that have mold and that have other problems. And you see uh, sick office buildings where people get Legionnaire's disease or they have headaches from the off-gassing of carpets and things like that. So 
the idea that the minimum standard is acceptable is really something that, that Joe and I feel is unacceptable. And you really can demonstrate on an empirical basis how cognition improves, particularly with different levels of CO2, volatile organic compounds, and particulates. And so my colleagues at the School of Public Health have done double-blind uh, referee journal kind of experiments with volunteers who work in an office setting um, for a week. And three or four times a day, they take a test on strategy, cognition, and memory. And then in this double-blind experiments, so the amounts of CO2 vary and all we can do with human subjects is about 1,500 parts per million of CO2, but your typical stuffy classroom has 2,000 parts per million. And it's not just anecdotal that you get um, the nods when you have this. Every single person in this study performed uh, demonstrably better, empirically, um, objectively better with cleaner air. So the numbers are something like 12 or less parts per million of PM 2.5s, something like 1,500 or 1,000 or less parts per million of CO2. Uh, we can't measure COVID in the air right now. That would be a nice thing to discover. But the other aspects of indoor air quality kind of uh, follow that. Then there were other foundations of a healthy building, including noise and water and safety. But um, right now we can talk about air. And um, I'd like to throw one other thing out there and see what, what Zach thinks of this as an investment proposition. Um, around air quality. So something else has changed in the last five or six years in addition to people's awareness of air, which is your ability to measure it yourself. So five years ago, if you want to know air quality, you call it a hygienist, a hygienist comes out with tanks and beakers and stuff, and they go back to the secret lab and they come back in a week and they tell the information from one sample just to the building manager. That's the only person who knows it. Well, now you can go to, to any online shopping site right now and see at least 30 personal individual air quality monitors all under $200, where you can measure the air quality yourself in real time in your office or your apartment or your child's school. Most of these things are tied to the web, the way that Purple Air tied outdoor air quality information during the California wildfires so that citizens knew what this air quality was. This really changes the power dynamic because if people are thinking about a healthy building and they're thinking about where they're going to spend 90% of their life because we spend about 90% of our time indoors and they're armed with their own air quality monitor that shares this information in a way like TripAdvisor or Glassdoor or something like that. To me, that sounds like an investable proposition that maybe Zach's already doing or JLL is already doing that Dave can talk about or something that has the potential to really change the dynamic of landlord-tenant negotiation in apartments and offices, particularly in areas where the outside air is dirtier than the inside air. So there's a, there may not be the avenue you want to go on, but I'm curious what people think about that as an investing premise, both from a tech point of view and from a healthy buildings point of view. So you're seeing it now in the market. If you have a tall uh, building in New York that's as undersized ductwork and non-operable windows, the value of those things is plummeting compared to the value of a recent um, healthier building that has operable windows and has a larger sized uh, mechanical system, in my observation. I mean, Zach and Dave may see something other than that. So there's lots to, to build on that from a point of view of a property investor and a tech investor. Certainly, air quality is a space that we have had our eye on for a while as investors. Um, you know, obviously, as Dan alluded to, um, you know, the fact that COVID transmits via the air, especially indoors, has really been a top of mind for everyone. Um, and so as we look at companies in this space, right, especially companies that are uh, purifying and disinfecting the air, um, you know, one 
theory I'm trying to figure out is you know who's actually driving the ultimate purchase, and uh, my current theory there is that it's probably going to be individual tenants, um, say tenants in an office building. Um, and the idea there is it's the same sort of behavior you saw with uh, people buying molecules for their homes, uh, you know, in the middle of the California wildfires. That's a brand of air purifier. That's right. Um, and so uh, that's kind of as far as I've gotten in terms of that thesis. It does seem like, uh, you know, a similar sort of psychological need that's being filled. Right. And so I do see um, individual tenants perhaps, you know, working to make their space safer and, you know, purchasing um, air purification technology themselves rather than waiting for, you know, their landlord or their building to do it for them. And at the same time, it sounds like there could be a natural selection happening on the building sides where well-capitalized buildings that can afford a lot of these high-quality tools will be the buildings of choice for businesses and older buildings potentially will have to essentially shut down or go out of business. I'm curious, um, you know, David um, and, uh, and others, Dan, um, what do you think in terms of kind of just the future of different types of buildings and who will survive? So one easy way to think about it is just in terms of a shift in demand, just a overall shift in the landscape of demand for office buildings. Um, everything is kind of shifting in the tenant's direction. Uh, and I think you are going to see that reflected in, um, yeah, just tenant expectations about how much you're willing to pay for what quality of space. Um, I think you're going to see it in terms of, you know, uh, more tenant-friendly lease terms, including uh, shorter lease terms, um, an increase in the use of uh, flex space. Um, and so, uh you know, it, the office is certainly not going away, but there's definitely been this shift in the dynamic of the marketplace uh, in the tenant's favor. And so, yeah, I think you are going to see that, um, you know, even just looking at the most obvious thing, which is that um, people are going to want more square feet per employee, right? Your point around uh, kind of uh, expectations is spot on. One of the expectations, I think, for everyone who's returning back to the offices is certainly social distancing. And Dan, can you maybe talk a bit about how uh, VergeSense is uh, promoting and, and, and supporting this concept of social distancing? And maybe what else is on on your roadmap, on the product roadmap, as you think about kind of developing uh, new features um, and capabilities for, uh, from the VergeSense perspective? So, so there's, there's sort of two, two elements to that. So um, fundamentally, what, what our technology does is we, we, we count how many human beings are within a space. Um, and, and in addition to that, um, we can also, from the sensors, uh, measure how, how far apart two people are. And the sort of interesting kind of backstory on this was that originally 
this feature around distance was developed to measure collaboration happening in the workplace. Um, a, a lot of people in workplace design will talk about workplace collisions, uh, which is an idea that you have these sort of random interactions within the office to inspire creativity, uh, et cetera. And, and so a lot of the pre-pandemic office design uh, was around uh, encouraging that and, and having people sort of cluster together. And, and of course, then COVID hits, we said, now people want the opposite. They want they, they want distance. And uh, the social distancing question is an, is an interesting one. Um, you know, originally, uh, again, going back to March, April, there was this concept of, you know, alerts uh, and you'd identify that an area was over capacity and then you'd go go do something about it. Um, in all practicality, that, that that just doesn't work. You know, ultimately, people people will sort of decide for themselves. But but where it has been useful is in sort of um, people looking at that data to identify specific areas in their real estate portfolio that uh, they're seeing a lot of clustering and sort of social distancing violations. Um, and then the people in facility management will actually make changes to the physical environment, whether it's removing chairs, changing the layout, uh, et cetera. Um, and, um, and, and that, again, you know, totally you're totally surprising, unanticipated um, use case. Uh, in terms of the future, um, into where we go uh, for product roadmap, um, we are hearing more and more um, about uh, hybrid and agile spaces. And um, as the behaviors around work will change so dramatically, um, using data to make decisions about where people are going to go in your portfolio, how you're going to manage your portfolio is going to be uh, more important than ever. Uh, so we're investing a lot in sort of um, data analytics and interpretation of data to help make uh, help real estate folks make decisions uh, about the portfolio in that new agile hybrid context. In general, that one of the things that we didn't uh, touch on is all of these things um, in terms of making buildings healthier and safer are actually fantastic in terms of boosting uh, the bottom line and profitability of the company um, morale, uh, making uh, these companies more attractive from the talent and recruiting perspective. Um, John, I know you have some research that you guys have done on that subject. Um, could you share some of it? Uh, and I'm sure it will be quite inspirational for many of us who are listening. Sure, I can share it in a couple levels. One is a generic um, income statement for a tenant company, and the second is a, a real case study we did for a, a project in New York. So if you think of a knowledge worker company like a law firm or a, a private equity firm or a, a um, consulting firm or something, about half of their um, revenue line or income statement line is made up of salary. And about uh, 20 or 30% is made up of occupancy costs, and 3 or 4% is made up of energy. So um, I think we've been sort of missing the boat by chasing this energy. Like energy is easy to measure. It's easy to see. But if you're saving 5% of 5%, that's 0.2%. That's not that big a deal, particularly if it means that we've overemphasized buildings that are too tight and uh, where people are not doing their best. So if you think about that 50%, of payroll and think about um, how can I stretch that a little bit? Like if the people are actually have the opportunity based on their motivation and their boss and their task to do one more interview or write one more article or make three more sales calls or process four more claims, that benefit goes straight to the bottom line. It doesn't go through any of the other um, discounts or anything. It really benefits the company or it benefits the person. Um, similarly, if people are 
not going out sick or not spending two weeks on a ventilator, that benefits the company as well. Or it benefits somebody. There's a zone of possible agreement where maybe this all accrues to the employee. Maybe it all accrues to the company because they're cracking their whip on how many claims you process. Or maybe there's a chance to split it between the landlord and the tenant. So overcoming that split incentive issue between CapEx and OpEx and landlord expenses and tenant expenses is a key piece. But there's clearly value to be created and the value to be shared in that regard. Uh, of that order of magnitude of uh, 10% of the net income of a tenant company based on what we've seen around some of the cognition results. So let me extend that now into the real world. Um, before COVID, uh, Joe, uh, my co-author, and I wrote a case study about 425 Park Avenue in New York. It's an L&L Holdings project, um, claimed to be the healthiest building in New York, the first well-certified building in New York, upsized mechanical systems, also lots of daylight, lots of other aspects. And we asked the landlord, uh, and what I actually have my students do is we walk through some templates for what do you have to believe about how much more the capital cost was? How much more is the operating cost going to be for the landlord and for the tenant? And how much more do you have to believe you're going to get in rent to make it pay off? Now remember, this is a new building in an expensive market where the rents are pretty high. And uh, the students can work back and forth on this. But the bottom line is that for another 1% or 2% in capital costs in a new building, um, you can have a building that is primo healthy. And the argument that um, the, land, the, the developer LNL Holdings had is in an upmarket, we're going to get the premium. We're going to get people who want to be in this location for the healthiest building there is because their employees care, their employees notice this. Then the further argument was, but in a down market, we may not get the premium, we'll get the tenant. And if you think about it, all else equal, all else is never equal, but all else equal, wouldn't you think that the tenant and the employees would come to the building that's demonstrably healthier rather than the one that's not? So that's what we're waiting to see. Uh, now in this time, in this leasing atmosphere, and uh, many of Zach's uh, clients and, and also Dave's are trying to lease space right now. But um, it's become pretty clear that the healthier buildings are have more value and are attracting tenants. And I think that'll be consistent with on the brokerage side, which ALL's experience. Um, and as you said earlier, it also means there's this flow towards scale. So it's another thing that helps people with scale. So if you imagine the big REIT that doesn't have a lot of leverage. It's pretty well capitalized. They have a long uh, horizon and they can afford to have several people on staff looking at these things. They can have a substantially healthier building and demonstrate it compared to a smaller company that's over leveraged and doesn't have these kind of people um, looking at this kind of stuff uh, and, and has to react to this quarter because nobody's paying rent this quarter. So if it, as in every other cycle, uh, on the downside of the cycle, the haves will will do well and it'll, it'll shake out some other people. Yeah, this is so interesting. You know, as we were talking about how to comply with uh, health uh, regulator requirements and just to make workplaces safer for for employees, it does appear that there's a number of very specific um, uh, measurable benefits for uh, bottom line and, and just ways to make your company more attractive for top talent. Um, I'm curious, um, David and Dan, are there um, sort of other surprising benefits of improving wellness and safety and clean air um, that you guys have been kind of discussing and noticing from the pr practitioner's perspective? Yeah, the only thing I'll add there is, is, is that on the um, um, now that sort of remote uh, is is going to be here to stay for, for basically forever, um, the 
sort of opportunity within the, the built environment and the workplace itself is to sort of reimagine the purpose of that. Um, and, and the general theme um, that, w- that we see from all of our customers is um, around companies trying to design and encourage that environment to be more about collaboration, you know, inhuman connection uh, versus just kind of showing up and punching the time card. So with that, the sort of demand for quality of space from occupants uh, is going to be higher than ever. And and um, um, the sort of old days of, of walking into uh, a building with you know, the old carpeting, a crappy environment is just not something that people are going to sign up for, um, especially when people have a lot more I'm talking about knowledge workers primarily, but knowledge workers have a lot of uh, choice in terms of uh, where they want to work and how often they'll do it. Definitely remote. agree. I, I do think top top talent will will vote with their feet in terms of kind of going uh, to work for companies that take this really seriously and are not shy to make uh, an investment in in healthy buildings. Um, to close things out, John, I wanted to ask you what advice do you have for CEOs and company leaders um, as they're planning their potential return to physical offices uh, during COVID, post-COVID in 2021? Well, it's pretty clear. Um, wear a mask and wash your hands. But the key thing is around ventilation. As was said earlier, that in COVID, the transmission is from aerosols, not even so much from droplets or from the surfaces. So run the fans, spend a couple extra pennies to run the fans and run the humidification and dehumidification, change the filters. Um, it's pretty easy to upgrade filters from, say, a MERV 8 to a MERV 13. That doesn't really change the pressure drop across the membrane. It's harder to upgrade to uh, to HEPA kind of system like a hospital it, in a, it retroactively. Uh, we're not that big on a lot of the other mechanical interventions. Um, like people want to talk about uh, ionization a lot, which is interesting, but um, it also can create gases that are even worse, like ozone. There are a lot of unexpected consequences. So the, the basics of distancing, masking, wash your hands, open the windows, run the fans, change the filters, spend a few extra bucks on energy to make the air cleaner is, is um, by far the takeaway. Well said. And likewise, um, David, Zach, uh, and Dan, what advice do you have for investors and entrepreneurs um, who are considering and looking for opportunities to invest in this uh, change in workplace real estate as companies consider their return back to physical offices? Well, so um, certainly touchless is a big thing. Um Certainly, uh, that's a theme that we're all seeing uh, in the office, this idea of a sort of touchless lane from the entrance to your desk. Um, It's reflected in things like uh, the visitor management system, right? If you're visiting an office building and you're doing the check-in, you know, you don't want to have to touch that iPad or whatever, (laughs) right? It's got to be all sort of laid out for you. Um, in this sort of touchless sequence of events. Um, It's also interesting to think about, I mean, contact tracing was sort of an underutilized thing uh, this pandemic, I think. Um, And so it's interesting to think ahead into the future where we're all using uh, smartphones to actually gain access to a building, right? We're using it to actually badge in to a turnstile or into a door. and once you have that smartphone that's embedded in your 
sort of access control routine, um, you know, it's not a huge leap for those smartphones to all sort of start talking to each other and realize, you know, who's been in proximity to who else um, and, you know, being able to do um, to kind of piggyback contact tracing on access control. Um, you know, that's a little bit futuristic, but um, kind of interesting to think about, um, especially given how underutilized contact tracing was um, this pandemic. If you guys remember, there was like this big initiative from, I think it was like Google and Apple and everyone had these big ideas about how we were going to do this big, you know, massive contact tracing effort. Um, and it just logistically proved very hard to implement. Definitely. Dan, anything from you for for those uh, entrepreneurs or folks that are looking to solve tough problems in the uh, prop tech? Yeah, the, the only thing there is I, I think there's definitely a lot of opportunity because the assumptions around work have sort of changed forever. Uh, it used to be an office first assumption where people would be in the office and then there'd be a little remote work happening. Um, but now it's almost like a remote first assumption with office as sort of a phase two. Um, and, I, and I think that will, the balance of that will change. So I, so I think with that, um, the way we think about collaboration, productivity, um, developing, you know, training new employees um, and, and team members, uh, onboarding uh, new people. I mean, just a lot of things that are sort of, you know, rapidly changing, which is, uh, you know, for, for people that I want to do companies is, is, is the right time to, to go after it. So yeah, we, we, we think there's a lot of changes coming in the next couple of years and it's an exciting place to be. This concludes our Harvard Real Estate Review podcast, episode number two, where we discussed how to plan for workplace changes in COVID reality. We shared investor and entrepreneur perspectives and discussed ideas that CEOs and leaders should consider as they bring their teams back into physical offices. No doubt, PropTech Innovation will continue to play a key role in enabling and accelerating post-COVID recovery. We will continue to stay on top of these trends and insights, and we'll bring these conversations to you in our next Harvard Real Estate Review podcast episode. Thank you, and stay tuned.